Okay, friends, we are in the book of Hebrews, and we are about uh, a little bit over half of the way through. What we're going to talk about this morning is we're going to cover the, the big chunk of what's called the middle section of the book. And this is when the author gets very deep into um, the Jewish ritual life and comparing what Christ did to Jewish temple worship. So there's, there's going to be a whole lot of detail that I'm going to explain a little bit, but kind of breeze over because he's going to be talking about things that people would have known, would have taken for granted in detail at the time. Um, and you and I probably do not know to the same extent. So if, if you want to just briefly follow along, we're going to go through roughly chapter seven through nine this morning. Um, brief recap where we've been. So Hebrews is a sermon. Hebrews is the most theologically dense book, the most theologically nuanced book of the New Testament, but it was not written as a treatise to people with PhDs in theology. It was written as a sermon. And it was written as a sermon to people who were Jewish Christians, so people who were Jewish in the first century but had um, chosen to follow Christ and, and ha had become convinced that Christ was the fulfillment of um, God's message to Abraham and um, the, the, the answer to all of, of the prophecies. And so uh, Jewish Christianity had its own flair in the first century that was distinct from the rising Gentile Christianity under uh, the leadership of Paul in that everything they understood about Jesus had to do with the prophecies that they saw in what we call the Old Testament, what they would just call the scriptures. Every time in the, the New Testament, when you see them refer to the scriptures, they're referring to the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. And so this sermon preached to Jewish Christians involves a whole lot of information that they would have known just from having large portions of the Old Testament memorized and from living out um, uh, Jewish ritual life in their daily lives that you and I need a little bit of a refresher on because we don't have the same kind of cultural context. The second thing we need to remember about the book of Hebrews is it was written as an encouragement. So Context clues tells us that there was something going on to discourage the people to whom this letter was written. There was something, go some kind of outward pressure to fall away was happening because the whole thrust of the book of, Reve of Revelation, the book of Hebrews, the whole thrust of the book of Hebrews is stay the course, stay faithful to the message you have received. In fact, we're, we're going to get to, within the next couple of weeks, some of the most powerful passages in the entire New Testament, um, the ones that we read every All Saints Day, the ones, you know, the, these, these great, great poetic passages that have inspired generations of people. They cut, the, the reason they're in Hebrews is that Hebrews was written as a sermon to people who really needed a sermon at that point um, about why they're here and why they needed to stay the course and stay in the faith. So if you've missed any of the first couple of sermons where we've walked over the first, walked through the first couple of chapters, um, they're all on the website. Where we are today is the author is really going to start drawing some analogies here between, last week we talked about Jesus as the high priest. The author is going to spend several chapters unpacking the concept of priesthood and then what that meant for um, the role of Christians in the sacrificial and their relationship to the sacrificial system. So if we, if you, I'm going to start at Hebrews 11, I'm uh, Hebrews 7. 
I'm not going to read word for word until we get to Hebrews 9, but I want to just go quickly over what the, the order of the argument here. So Hebrews 7 starts with um, the priestly order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't want to spend too long on here because there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of I don't know surrounding um, Melchizedek, but if you're doing any Hebrew study on your own, you're going to see that name come up, and so I want to just do a brief overview of why that name is included here. Melchizedek is a character out of Genesis, and what happened in Genesis was um, there was uh, Abraham went to rescue his nephew Lot, and when he came back, there's this really, really mysterious, like two verses where it said he met Melchizedek and offered him a tenth of everything he had. Uh, and that's it. That's all we hear. Like we don't, we don't hear anything else other than Melchizedek was a priest, but not a priest, not a priest of Israel because Israel had not been invented yet. Um, Israel was not around yet. The priestly order was not around yet. None of the Jewish temple rites were around yet. And so Melchizedek literally walks out of nowhere. Abraham offers him a tenth of everything and then Melchizedek walks back into nowhere and we never hear from him again until Hebrews. Um, and so if you're wondering why don't we know more, it's like, the, welcome to Genesis, folks. Um, Genesis is one of those books that is so old and has so many different voices that there are lots of little verses here and there that were just like, I don't know, they knew 6,000 years ago. We don't know right now. Um, I mean, wait until you start looking at the Nephilim. Like there's a lot of things in Genesis that are just kind of mysterious. And Melchizedek is one of those. Um, all those little mysterious things, we don't have a lot about them in scripture, but all of them had traditions kind of written up around them right? So you have these rabbis who are reading these and would, would, would write these traditions like, maybe this happened, maybe this happened, maybe this is the backstory. Um, and so we, we can suppose that kind of thing happened with Melchizedek. He's called the, um, a, a priest of Salem. Um, and that's, that's pretty much all we know, but we get into the Hebrews and the author of Hebrews uses this figure to say, Jesus is this kind of priest, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, what does that mean? That means Jesus was not a priest in the Jewish sense of the word. He didn't come from the right family. He didn't do any of the, the temple rituals um, for the Jewish priesthood, and yet he performed a priestly function. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is saying, look, look back in Genesis, there's that random guy that we don't know anything about, who yet he was, whoever that was, was so valuable that Abraham gave him a tithe, Jesus is like that. Jesus is not a priest in the way we, dis we discover priests. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. This person um, who was apparently just assigned from God, brought from God, who is going to fulfill a priestly role for us. Now, what is the priestly role that Jesus fulfills that the normal priest couldn't. So let's, let's have a brief overview of what the priestly system was. The priestly system for the Jewish people at this time period um, was run by official priests. And the priests in the, they, it was called the, um, the Order of Aaron. This was the family of Aaron. This was not something that you woke up one morning and you said, I feel called to be a priest. 
It was something you were born into it and you had no way of being born out of it. So if you were born into the priesthood, you would fulfill the role that you were born into and you would, and all that happened was happened by the people who was, uh, was in, implemented by the people who were assigned to do it. And the role of the priest was to um, enact all of these sacrifices that dealt with the people's sin. So if you look back to where all of this started, I started in the Mosaic Law, God made a covenant with his people and he put all of these rules around the covenant. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You're going to follow all of these rules. Also, this is what happens when you break them. I've learned that this is important to do with children. <laughs> I'm going to set these rules for you. Here's what's going to happen if you break them. Because if, if you don't, then they're going to break them and you have no way to deal with it. And so Jesus, uh, God, in making this covenant, set all of these rules. And then he said, this is what's going to happen when you break them. And it was this whole elaborate system of many, many different kinds of sacrifices. Now, of those, there were some sacrifices that were more important than others. Um, there were some sacrifices that were more efficacious than others. But they all had to be repeated Every time somebody broke the covenant, so if um, if you if you if you read through the Mosaic Law, you can see if you um, do this, you can go make a sin offering for that. If you do this, you can go make a sin offering for that. And then on top of all of that, once a year, the high priest would offer a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the whole community to bring everyone back into covenant relationship with God. And this happened year after year after year. It originally happened in a place called the tabernacle, and then it happened in a place called the temple. When you read Exodus, you and I tend to think of buildings as not important. When you read Exodus, you will see that the majority of the emphasis of God making this covenant with his people is creating exact specifications of a dwelling wherein these sacrifices can occur. Because whatever you think of Old Testament sacrifice, the law seems to think that something actually happened at that time, that God was actually implementing something through that system. And so the tabernacle was a tent, and there were different courtyards, and the innermost courtyard was called the uh, innermost place was called the Holy of Holies. It's considered the actual dwelling place of God. One person entered once a year. It was the high priest, and that was it. Made atonement for the sin of the people, left. And all of that, um, the series of, of, of rituals and of sacrifices that went on were supposed to take care of the sins of the people. All, the tabernacle was then translated into the temple that had a... It was permanent structure, but it had a similar design in that there was an outer courtyard and an inner courtyard, and then a holy of holies, and the holy of holies was only entered once a year by one person. And all of these rituals that went on over and over and over again were to deal with the sins of the people. So if you are a Jewish Christian in the first century and you're hearing this, you, all of this is going on in the background. The temple is operating in Jerusalem. All of these sacrifices are going on over and over and over again. You, as a Jewish person, probably had the experience of traveling to the temple at some point with your family, 
of buying a, a pair of doves or a, a sheep or whatever you're going to buy of, of bringing it to the temple so that they could make sacrifice for you so that you could be back in covenant relationship with God. All of this would have been a part of just the water that you swam in. And then this crazy preacher comes along and says, what Jesus did changed all of that. So he starts with Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, meaning he was outside the Jewish priestly system. He was directly from God. And what he accomplished was what that system was trying to accomplish but never could. And so if you, if you go down, he goes, if perfection, this is verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for the people received the law under this priesthood, what further would there have been needed to speak of another priest arising according to the order of Melchizedek rather than according to the order of Aaron? For if there, when there is change in the priesthood, there is necessarily change in the law as well. Now, the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one is ever observed at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe that Moses said nothing about the priests. It is even more obvious that when another priest arises resembling Melchizedek, one who has become a priest not through legal requirement concerning physical descent, but through the power of an indestructible life, it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he goes on for a little bit explaining how Jesus is a different kind of priest. And the point of that is comes up to chapter 8 where he says Jesus is a different kind of priest because Jesus is initiating a new covenant with the people of the earth. So if you remember that word covenant means promise. Um, it's, it is, it's, a, it's a family promise. It's a promise that creates a familial relationship between people. So you could say a marriage is a covenant because it creates a familial relationship when previous, previously there was not one. A covenant between God and his people created this family, the family of God. And the original covenant was at Sinai when God made a covenant with his people through the law and implemented all that we'd been talking about with the tabernacle and the priests and the temple and all of that. And what Hebrews is saying here is Jesus is a new priest who is starting a new covenant. And in support of that, he, if you go down to verse 8, chapter 8, verse 8, he starts to quote from the Old Testament this promise that he sees in the prophets of a new covenant coming. The days are surely coming, said the Lord, where I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with all the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them by the hand out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, for I had no concern for them, said the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and they shall not teach one another or say to one another, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them for the greatest. And I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins.
think is kind of weird, but the first century people would think it's kind of cool. The author, the author seems uh, to be implying in chapter 9 that when Moses was describing the tabernacle and then later the temple, Moses was not just making this up. Moses was actually seeing in heaven a wor- the worship space of God, that there is a perfect tabernacle in the presence of God. And what was built on earth was a copy of it, a shadow of it. And what happened in Jesus was that Jesus was able to enter a heavenly sanctuary and enact a real sacrifice, whereas everything that has been happening on earth is only a shadow and only a copy and not efficacious for all of time. Um, if you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 9, the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly sanctuary. A tent was constructed. He goes down and down. Um, that's the part we've already talked about. Verse 11, when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, and then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place. Now, you remember we said the holy place was the holy of holies? One person was allowed to enter once a year. This author is saying there is a heavenly holy place, the real holy place, Jesus entered once and for all, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of ashes and a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, without blemish, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. And the argument that he is making there is that what happened on the cross, spiritually speaking, what happened on the cross is Jesus went into a heavenly sanctuary, made an offering that once and for all covered the sins of all creation and then returned from it so that a new covenant was opened whereby all creation would be able to worship and know the Lord. Remember that phrase, they will not say to one another, know the Lord, for they will all know me, the least of them to the greatest. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. Okay, guys, I know this is really dense. Just stay with me. We're about to get through the heart of the density and onto the why do I care about this. But you have, you have to get this part because modern Christianity tends to skip over the concept of sacrifice because we find it weird and kind of uncomfortable. And I'll bet you, um, all of you right there imagining animals being sacrificed on an altar right now feel a little bit of discomfort in your modern sensibilities because we don't do stuff like that anymore. And we think of it as ancient, and we think of it as pre-modern, and we think of it as tribal, and we think of it as barbaric. 
And we have to get a little bit of that out of our heads to understand what Hebrews is talking about. Hebrews is written on the assumption that God had to work through sacrifice because something, spiritually speaking, is changed with the shedding of blood. Oh, I just made all y'all uncomfortable. Just stay with me for a second. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices for these. For God did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to, listen to this line, for then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. That line implies that the sacrifice of Christ was not, is not bound by time, was not just efficacious for the rest of time, but is in fact efficacious back to the beginning of time. Um, That since the foundation of the world, the sacrifice that was made by Christ has covered all of time. But as it is, he has appeared once For all at the end of this age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for them. I want to read verse 22. So that was verse 23 through um, the end. I want to read verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay, so let's step away for a second and and say, what do we make of this? Because I actually don't like the idea of animal sacrifice. I don't like the idea of sacrifice at all. Um, I like the idea of sacrificing my time, right? I like the idea, I mean, I'll even sacrifice my money. I'll sacrifice lots of things. But this statement, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, makes me real uncomfortable. Here, I think, is where we are missing part of the point. When this author is speaking about what Jesus did, he knows that there was a cost to be paid and it could only have been paid by who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Remember we talked about last week what what, uh, God has not assumed he could not redeem. And so this, this figure of Jesus who was all God and all man and knew everything about what it meant to be human, that person being perfectly obedient and perfectly faithful and perfectly righteous and taking on to himself all of the consequences of sin and death willingly accomplished something that just being nice to each other does not accomplish. Accomplished in that sacrifice the forgiveness of sins, and not just your sin and my sin, but all sin Since the foundation of the world to the end of time, all sin was dealt with by the sacrifice of Christ, who acted as a great high priest for us, 
and accomplished what we could not accomplish on our own. And the implication there is that in, from our, in our perspective, in our point of view, we do not and we cannot understand the damage that what we call sin is actually doing, that it needs such a sacrifice as the Son of God to deal with it. Because the truth of the matter is, you and I, in our hearts of hearts, often don't actually think sin is that big of a problem. Um, you and I, in our heart of hearts, often think that our problems are a much bigger problem. Um, suffering is a much bigger problem. The fact that my uh, kids don't listen to me is a much bigger problem. The fact that I don't have what I, the life I want is a much bigger problem. And yet, from God's perspective, sin is the greatest problem, is the greatest catastrophe, is the greatest thing that needs to, needs to be dealt with, and it can only be dealt with by God himself, and it can only be dealt with by God's sacrifice of himself. So I want to tell you a story. Yesterday, Annabelle uh, and, and our whole family actually went out and had a family day in Bel Air. We were going to like um, the Bel Air Nature Center. I love that place. We were going to the Bel Air Park that was right across from there. And Annabelle was looking at the house that was literally right next to the Bel Air Park because like that's a great place to live. Like there's a park right across the street. And she goes, Mommy, why don't we live here? And I just had a curiosity. I HAR'd it just because I was really curious. It was like $1.9 million. Uh, and I was like, well, sweetheart, <laughs> because, I mean, even if we were going to move, we don't have enough money to buy this house. And she was like, Mom, I get money from the tooth fairy every time I lose a tooth. And uh, in her mind, she could get enough money from her tooth fairy so that we could buy the $1.9 million house right next to Bel Air Park, which is hilarious. But imagine if she actually thought that's the way it worked, right? She does not get how money works, and she does not get the difference between 25 cents and $1.9 million. She does not understand that difference. Let me give you another example. There was one time um, John was losing his ever-loving mind, because he does that um, from time to time. He was younger at this point. He was probably under a year, and he was just... All he wanted was mom, and all he had wanted for like the last six hours was mom, and I really wanted to take a shower. And so I put him down, I let him just scream for a while, and Annabelle comes in and she's like, but mom, if you just pick him up, he's going to stop crying. And I was like, I know that. <laughs> I wanna take a shower. And then she kept saying, but mom, if you just hold him, if you just keep, if you just hold him forever, he will stop crying. And in her mind, it doesn't cost me anything to hold him, right? In her mind, it does not cost me anything to hold him forever because she's five years old. Let me give you another example. When I was a kid, um, I used to get all kinds of Christmas gifts from people, uh, monetary Christmas gifts, $20 in the mail or something. My mom would give me $2 of that and she would put the rest in the college fund. And when I was eight years old, I discovered she'd been doing that, and I felt utterly betrayed. <laughs> Do you know what I could be doing with that $20? And then I got college age, and I discovered that I had enough money to go to college and seminary debt-free because of what my parents had done for me. Friends, we assume we know what things cost, and we rarely do because you and I do not have the perspective that God does. And here is what God, here is the point God is trying to make about sin. You do not know what it costs. Not really. 
not in your heart of hearts, not in your soul. You do not actually know what it costs when somebody hurts another human being, when somebody murders, when somebody abuses, when somebody lies, when somebody chooses a life entirely for their own benefit and not for others, when somebody walks past the poor without considering them a human being, you do not know what that cost. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, the greatest glory of all is that every sin you can possibly imagine has been dealt with. And at this point, you might not get that that's good news. But the day is going to come when you find that it is. The day is going to come when you realize that the cost that was paid for you was what you ultimately needed more than anything despite the fact that you might go through this entire life without getting some of your wants, the cost that was paid for you dealt with every sin you have ever committed and with every sin that has ever been committed against you. The price that was paid was a God who knew what your true enemy is and dealt with it. And only God could do it, and only God did do it. And the cost was his own life. But because of his love for his world, and because of his love for his people, and yes, because of his love for you, he counted the cost manageable because he thought it was worth it. So friends, I just invite you to take that as perspective this week because you've got a lot of things going on in your life and it is entirely possible that you consider your sin the least of your worries. And it's entirely possible that you can consider the sin of the people around you the least of your worries. But God died to pay a cost you will never be able to imagine. And one day, you are going to be grateful because you're going to get why that price was paid. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, we are so naive. We are so naive. We think we have it all figured out. We think we've got our priorities right. We think we have the world at our fingertips. We think we see the world the way it is, and God, we forget that we have such a limited perspective. And so, the further we grow into relationship with you, God, we pray that you would give us your eyes. The further we grow into relationship with you, God, we pray that you, we, we, you would give us your priorities, and you would let us see things the way you see them. That our hearts that keep holding back from you are the biggest problem in our life. That our priorities that keep not being aligned with your priorities are the biggest problems in our life. God, that sin that we indulge is actually a far greater problem than even the suffering that we ask you to relieve us from. God, give us your eyes and give us your priorities that we might be filled with humility and gratitude for what you did for us before we were born for a sacrifice that covered all of time, 
for everything we have done, for everything we are going to do, for all that our worst selves could possibly imagine, a sacrifice that covered all, so that we could know you, so that we might no longer have to say to one another, know the Lord, for we shall all know you and know you face to face. Thank you, Lord. Give us your eyes and your hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this we say as we pray together the prayer our Lord taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.